Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Good morning, everybody. Uh, hello again. Um, so at the moment, over the next few weeks, the last couple of weeks, we've been working through, um, more or less through the book that uh, Colin and some guys here have written about kind of how we do church and what makes us, uh, kind of what makes us tick, um, how we do the things we do uh, and why we do them. Um, that's multi-planting, um, available from, well, it's available at the back and from an online retailer, which I have to say now. Um, so uh, last week, Sam spoke very, very well about uh, our have-a-go culture. And this week, we're looking at uh, wholeheartedness. Um, at CCM, uh, we believe that wholeheartedness is uh, fundamental to who we are as Jesus followers. Um, and I started by wondering, what does wholeheartedness mean? Um, I did a word study. I looked into great depth. And you'll like this, because it's very, very clever. If we go to the next slide, you've got heartedness, and you've got whole. Um, <laughs> So with heartedness, it's something to do with your feelings. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's something uh, guttural, um, you mean it. Another word for that is uh, sincerity. Um, if you're committing the whole of something, um, then you're, you are, well, you're being committed. Um, you're not leaving anything behind. Um, you're not being half-baked about the process. Um, so I think you can sum wholeheartedness up as sincerity uh, and commitment. Um, but the other thing that's kind of hidden in the middle there is what's actually in your heart, uh, is very important to whether your wholeheartedness is going to be effective for the Lord or um, the opposite. So we've got heartedness, we've got um, uh, sincerity, we've got uh, whole, which is commitment, and we've got this magic source uh, in the middle, which is what you're actually committing all of. Um, so with, this thing, with these things in mind, uh, we're going to examine a story from Luke's Gospel about a Pharisee and a sinful woman. And as with a lot of these stories, especially when they involve Pharisees, what we want to do is we want to use the Bible and hold it up as a mirror um, to ourselves uh, and see what it shows about us and not shy away um, from some of the negative things um, it may show, because believe you me, they are in there on occasion. Um, So in this story, we see two very different attitudes uh, compared, and it's right to think about that uh, soberly. So uh, as with all Bible stories, the first thing we should do is work out uh, where we fit, which character do we align with most. Um, So as we read, I'd ask you to do that. Um, Throughout all of Jesus' Gospels, he has uh, frequent bouts with the Pharisees. Uh, It's a common motif. He's always conversing with them, humiliating them, and then trying to humiliate him back. Um, And it kind of goes on and on and on. Um, The Pharisees were this hyper-puritanical um, sect of Judaism. Um, they'd kind of they'd separated themselves a bit from temple worship. Um, they'd popularized the idea that you can worship God kind of separately from Jerusalem. They've made synagogues uh, very important. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and uh, they really valued personal piety, um, doing everything right and being sinless. They also had like a nationalistic uh, perspective. Um, and they thought that salvation meant that God would save the nation of Israel um, from its oppression. And they put those two beliefs together and came up with the idea that God would save 
his people from oppression when the people as a whole were sinless. So I want you to imagine if you think the only way for you to be saved is if your whole country is saved, and if the only way for your whole country to be saved is if everyone agrees with you about what is good and what is bad, and then follows through on it. Just imagine what that would do to how you think about the world, how you think about your neighbours, uh, and how you think about God. Jesus turns up with a very different proposal uh, regarding what salvation means. Uh, so in Luke's Gospel in particular, the Pharisees are normally the villains. Um, they're always trying to trick Jesus one way or another. Um, he normally escapes, um, and he's more than capable of giving uh, as good as he gets. Um, so we end up with these little exchanges that sometimes read a bit like a game of chess. Um, Jesus really lays it on thick with the Pharisees. He insults them a lot. Um, fools, dogs, vipers, um, foxes. Um, and so why does Jesus go after these guys in particular? Um, you might think that winding people up is not particularly a Jesus uh, thing to do, um, but he is very effective and very frequent in his uh, humiliation and uh, degradation of um, the Pharisees and some of uh, their worldviews. The Pharisees were the people that were looked up to as holy and close to God. As I said, in just a few hundred years, their philosophy of religion had become like the, the big deal uh, in Judah. And so all the other people around the Pharisees would have this tendency, in the most part, of looking to the Pharisees and thinking, that's what God likes, and that's what it's like to be like God. If I want to be holy, I've got to be like them. And that's the rub in this story, because God is fiercely protective of his reputation, and for good reason. The only hope for all of us, for every human, the only way that any person um, can live up to their full potential uh, and have joy, love, faithfulness, fullness, is that they come close to God and stay close to him. There is no other way. And so if God's reputation is being sullied by the people who are supposed to represent him, you have this very real risk that some people will look at the Pharisees and think, I can't do that, therefore I can't get close to God. Do you, do you, get, do you get what I'm saying here? There's a, there's a reason that Jesus acts in what we might think is an un-Jesus um, way uh, when he talks about these people. So because God loves us, he is protective of his reputation. What did they see when they looked at the Pharisees? They saw judgmentalism, they saw religiosity, they saw nitpickery, they saw nepotism, and as we'll see in this story in particular, they saw indifference uh, to their suffering and their daily lives. And so that's why I want to say um, that Jesus is so relentless uh, in his intellectual uh, pursuit of the Pharisees. Now let me ask you a question. Where do the people of Manchester look to see what our God is like? From whom do they form their opinion of our teacher? Sam said last week that we are God's ambassadors. So when we see Jesus intellectually knock the Pharisees for six, we need to look seriously at the Pharisees and ask ourselves, are there any ways that we think or behave similarly? So we're going to read uh, Luke uh, 7, 36 to 50. Um, this is one of those stories that I've kind of laid the groundwork for. Everyone likes to put themselves in one character's shoes. And I'm going to say that maybe in a lot of the ways we act, we actually need to put ourselves in a different uh, character's shoes. 
Um, as I said before, Jesus lays traps up uh, for the Pharisees, and there is one in here. So I want to see if you can spot it. Uh, so Luke 7, 36 to 50, a sinful woman forgiven. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So Jesus says, a certain moneylender has two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So where was the trap in that little story, the trap for Simon to fall into? It was right at the end. Um, Imagine you're a Pharisee. Imagine you're pretty sure you've got things sorted. You've tithed even your spices. Your wall chart shows you're all up to date with your temple offerings. You've twice this week gone to synagogue. You've presented your offering, and you've even prayed loudly to the Lord in front of the whole congregation. Your reputation precedes you, and everyone thinks you are righteous. You're respected and honoured. Everyone says hello to you in the street. The talk of the town is your guest, and he's sat around your table. You don't need to worry about him particularly. He clearly has not very much to teach you. He's even let the town prostitute come and let her hair down around him and kiss his feet. Maybe he's met her before. They seem very familiar. <laughs> then this travelling rabbi tells you a story. You're a little taken aback, but this is what the man is famous for. He tells the story about one person who's very in debt and another person who is very, very, very in debt where the creditor in both cases forgives the debt. He asks you this question, which debtor loves the moneylender more? And you answer, obviously, the one who had more debt forgiven. Then he tells you you got it right, as if there would be any doubt. And the trap has sprung. There's the next slide. There we go. I like the Star Wars week. Um, <laughs> what is Simon thinking now? He probably thinks that Jesus has just told a story to confirm to him how he is less sinful than the woman who is washing his feet. And in one fell swoop, his religious mindset has made him completely miss the point. God, however, Jesus, is kind and sincere and committed. And unlike Simon, who keeps his criticism to himself, Jesus openly eviscerates him. And it's for everyone's good. And we'll come back to that later. So we'll continue with our story, and we'll read the rebuke. So turning towards the woman, he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The little fun fact. You can tell what sort of person translated my Bible because they gave this story the title of A Sinful Woman Forgiven rather than A Religious Person Rebuked. So what exactly does Simon rebuke, what exactly does Jesus rebuke Simon for? There's four things, um, two are long, two are short, and I've done a sandwich, so there you go. Number one, he rebukes Simon for having no service. Do you see this woman? You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon doesn't wash Jesus' feet. He doesn't even seem to provide a bowl for Jesus to wash his own feet. This is one of those things that we kind of lose in translation because it's not something we would do or particularly expect. I'm going to ask you a question. Um, how many of you have like a no-shoes rule in your house? Uh, quite, you know, a, f- a fair few, it's a thing. Certainly if you have nice carpets, if you've got kind of hardwood floors, it's less of an issue. But why, why do you have that rule? Because you'll get it dirty, exactly. Now imagine you live in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. We think our streets are dirty because of all the litter. But it was much, much worse without plastic because everything that ended up on the floor leaked or rotted. We think a road is dirty. This isn't the ancient Middle East, but it's kind of the picture. We think a road is dirty when some car has dripped some oil on it. But imagine if every single vehicle had to defecate every mile and a half. Yeah, you, can picture, you can picture Kingsway. We get annoyed with potholes and speed bumps, but many of the roads in ancient Judah won't even have been paved at all. They would be soft, uneven tracks, and all the hooves and stuff would make these nice little dips for all of the stuff we just talked about to collect. The roads were much dirtier. And it gets worse. To travel, you weren't getting in your car or on a bike, you know, where you can park up somewhere without a puddle. You hop in the car. You drive off and you park somewhere without a puddle and you get out the car. No, you were walking and often in open-toed sandals. So feet got dirty. All that stuff that's collecting in those potholes and puddles we talked about that comes out of the cars, it's getting in that bit between the bottom of your flip-flop and your toes, which means it's getting in between your toes and under your, under your, uh, under your toenails. Some of you, I can see already, Find clean feet nasty to think about. This place was not for you. It gets worse. Because when you go for dinner, you don't sit at a table where your feet are hidden by socks under a nice piece of wood. You lie on the floor with your feet kind of kicked out to the side. So your feet are actually in quite close proximity to someone else's face while they're eating. Your feet are on display and everyone can see and smell them. Yeah, that's, that's all the people went there. Yeah. So the scale of this faux pas doesn't click with us, but what it shows is that Simon really isn't considering Jesus' position, the effect this will have on even his other guests, let alone, let alone Jesus. He hasn't thought about Jesus with any sense of care. He hasn't considered Jesus' need or comfort. And this shows a lot of disregard. He's not considering Jesus as worthy of his time or resources. Compare this to Jesus himself, who later in the story, even as God, will wash the feet, even of Judas, 
who will betray him. Even more compares to the woman who washes these rancid feet with her tears and her hair. That tells you a couple of things. One, even she is surprised at Simon's lack of hospitality because if she expected to be cleaning Jesus' feet, she would have bought something to do it with. She would have not have done it with her own hair. The second thing it tells you is that she's crying a lot. Yeah, if you think of the water, the water needed... To, I mean, these feet are clean, probably, by Middle Eastern standards. This is a woman who feels a lot of affection towards Jesus. And we'll come back to affection in a second. And she's clearly committed. Yeah, you don't use your hair. I mean, some of you spend a huge amount of money on keeping your hair nice. Yeah. You do not go and wash someone else's muddy feet with it. This is sincere. It is with feeling. You can see that because it's crying. And it is with commitment. Yeah? She can't take it back once she's done this. If this doesn't work out for her, she's leaving with her reputation even more in tatters than it was before. And with who knows what in her hair. <laughs> the woman's service is costly. And she does it at great expense to herself. Simon, on the other hand, doesn't seem to have committed anything to this hospitality. And from what we can read, he didn't care. The second, um, the second, we're actually going to go forward two slides, three slides. There we go. Right. The second one is rebukes her for no affection. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, again, another thing which doesn't quite cross my mind, but anointing with oil was like a symbol of affection, whereas feet washing was like the bare minimum you did for any guest. And we'll talk about the kiss in a second. The, the oil was a, um, you reserved it for, for people that you really liked, you, know, you were really happy to have. It was a symbol of joy and gladness. Psalm uh, 45, therefore God has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are fragrant with myrrh and gratitude. This was something you did um, for people you like. It's a symbol of wholeness. Simon has neglected to do this to his head, which would have been a dot of, you know, a dot of oil on the head, all the temples, or, or his hands. And so the woman, so in love with Jesus, so affectionate for him, uses her own ointment, which probably was a significant proportion of everything she owned, and uses it on his feet. She shows him affection, whereas Simon shows him no affection. We can go back two slides. Um, the third rebuke was no honour. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. The, f the French among us kind of get the, the kissing thing as a greeting a bit more. Um, in, this, uh, in this environment, it was more, more honour than affection. It was kind of, we kind of kept it a bit like fealty, so you can see it's something people do for the Pope. Um, you know, if there was a rabbi or a teacher, you would kiss their hand. It would be a sign of respect, a, a kind of a bit of deference. So what we know is that even though Simon has invited the famous teacher to his house, he has no intention of learning from the teacher because he has shown no respect or honour um, to the teacher himself. The fourth rebuke, so we now have to go forward, what, five slides or something? 
keep going. There we go, right. The fourth rebuke, and this is the big one. And remember the trap I said that Simon fell into earlier of uh, thinking Jesus told him a story to confirm to him how he's much less sinful um, than the other person. The thing Jesus is really going after here with all the other rebukes is that he has no humility. We can see this all over the story. It's in the other three rebukes we've talked about. But also, I want you to look at near the beginning. Now, the Pharisee who invited him saw this, and he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is. He doesn't even raise his question to the teacher. And some of us do this. You know, we're so convinced of our own cleverness or moral superiority or rightness, when we have a critique or a question or a criticism, we don't even raise it. We are content to sit and be comfortable with our own sense of superiority. Simon clearly knew the woman. He knew enough to know that she was a sinner. Do you think he had ever spoken to her? Do you think he'd ever spoken to her as if she was a human with equal dignity and value before the Lord? The story doesn't tell us, but I think we see from his reaction to her, the answer is probably not. <coughs> Simon goes to the trouble of inviting Jesus into his house, but we can see that it's clear his heart isn't really in it. He's, maybe the jury's out, or maybe he's just trying to prove a point, who knows. But look at what happens. He knows the woman is a sinner. And as soon as, Jesus, as soon as the woman touches Jesus, Jesus becomes a sinner. If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is. Jesus becomes excluded by association. You see, Simon has this kind of religious, uh, categorical thinking. That means the second you associate with someone who's a sinner, you become a sinner yourself. Or if you don't become a sinner, you're like, okay, well, you're in that camp. Because remember, they're thinking that the only way for them to get saved is that everyone thinks like them. You, know, you have to maintain the purity of the good people, which means excluding anyone who questions that? I think, there's, I think there's the next slide. You end up with these two circles, and you, put, you define them normally so that you fit in that one, and anyone who's not like you enough fits in the other one. All religious people are like this, and we're all a bit like this because we all suffer from a little bit of religion. They look at the world, they divide it into these categories, a good one and a bad one. They kind of gerrymander the circles, which um, it's okay. it means you change the rules so that you don't, define, you don't decide the rules and then work out which category you're in. You know which category you want to end up in and you make the rules so that you end up in that category. Um, they can, and we do it to convince, they do it to convince themselves of their own self-righteousness. Obviously their category is correct. Every story that affirms their categorization, they remember, and all the evidence that challenges it, they conveniently forget. Because they've decided that everyone not in their category is evil. They exclude them. This sort of thinking is devoid of humility. It comes from a heart that is so convinced of its own superiority, of its own rightness, that it decides in an instant 
whether a person has anything that could possibly be of value to them. What an insult to the image of God present in every human being. Jesus overhears Simon's thoughts, which shows he's a pretty clever guy, and he rebukes him, telling a story that is designed to make it clear to Simon that he is more like the woman than he is like the God. And highlighting the value and dignity of the woman, Simon had so rapidly and so permanently excluded. The irony of this story is probably, well, the text doesn't say this for sure, that Simon is supposed to be represented by the debtor with the greater debt. He lacks the humility to see it. This sort of thinking is poisonous, and it has absolutely no place in our church community. Does that mean we are not guilty of it? Those of us who have had the privilege, dubious privilege, of living in this country for the last five years will know that sometime in 2016, we all decided that this was the thinking we wanted to get really, really good at. My Facebook and Twitter feeds have been filled with posts dehumanising and excluding those with sometimes over only fractionally different political positions. Some of these posts shared by people who I happily call my Christian brothers and sisters. We have all seen people pronounce on social media that so-and-so who disagrees with this or agrees with this can happily unfriend me. We still do this. If we go to the next slide. Oh, yeah. <coughs> Jesus in the category. If we go to the next slide. This is a story that came out this week. Um, you might not have noticed it because there was something happening with a, a family that does not want to be part of a family anymore. <laughs> who cares? This story happened uh, this week. Um, Vince Vaughan faces backlash after shaking Donald Trump's hand at a football game. Is it a football game? Yes, football game. Next slide. This is what's happened. The good people know that Donald Trump is in the bad category. Who knows why? And so when, Do when Vince Vaughan shakes his hand, Vince Vaughan goes in the bad category. There is no excuse for it. Now, I'm not saying that Mr. Trump doesn't have some bad ideas, <laughs> but I will let you in on a secret. So do you. <laughs> Even in our churches, our churches, I've heard sermons and conversations deriding, rather than legitimately challenging and questioning, deriding certain political figures, and even worse, deriding people who might support them. Had those preachers, or my Christian brothers and sisters, oh, I might have switched it off by mistake, it's right. Um, had those preachers, or my Christian brothers and sisters, ever spoken to anyone about why they might think differently? I don't know. I doubt all of them had. But this idea comes even closer to home. Those of us who have been in a church any length of time know that there's a thing we call sin, and all of it is bad, and all of it is equal, except we don't act like that's true. There's an unspoken list of sins that are okay, a more spoken list of things that aren't. We go to the next slide. How many of you would be happy if someone who was taking a Class A drug 
was stood where I'm standing, preaching a sermon. None of you. How many of you are happy that I'm preaching a sermon? Probably knowing that while I was driving to work, I have called someone a fool. Yeah, who's called someone a fool while they're driving anywhere? Yeah, yeah, good, right? It's, It's okay. It's okay. I don't remember Jesus ever explicitly criticizing people who take class A drugs. But I do remember Jesus saying what happens to people who call other people fools. We have a clear churchy conception of a hierarchy of sins. We have gerrymandered the boundaries between in and out. Because all of these things are bad. I'm not saying that. If we go to the next slide. I ran out of space <laughs> in the things we are happy to overlook. <laughs> this is not what Jesus wants from his church. This poisonous religiosity, religiosity is not what the world needs from the church. It is perfectly capable of generating this crap on its own. The world does not need Christians who are content to sit in their intellectual religious ivory towers and happy to deride and dehumanise outsiders. We do it more nicely than some other people might. But look out for the people who sometimes don't get spoken to on a Sunday after, on a, Sunday after a church service. They're not normally the people that look like us. What the world needs is to see people kindly, gently, firmly and lovingly criticising, yes, challenging, yes, pleading, yes, actually interacting with people as if they are equally broken, equally valuable and equally human. Jesus is not gentle when he describes the Pharisees and this attitude. If we go to the next slide. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly you appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. You also appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. There is nothing in this thinking except death and other people's bones. In every interaction in this story, Simon is devoid of sincerity, devoid of commitment. From beginning to end, all of his actions are summed up as the bare minimum I can get away with. Right from the beginning, he can't even be bothered to ask his question to Jesus. He just thinks it to himself. He isn't even asking Jesus about the situation. He could have said, oh, Jesus, do you know that this woman is a sinner? What are you thinking at the moment? He just thinks it to himself. He has used his pride and his self-righteousness to disregard Jesus. He's shown himself to be entitled in the way he failed to extend even basic acts of service. His failure to kiss or anoint Jesus show he lacks any affection or honour for the rabbi who was God. There is no such thing as entitled holiness. There is no such thing as dishonouring Christlikeness. There is no such thing as affectionless godliness. And there is no such thing as proud righteousness. They do not exist. 
So after all I've said about in-groups and out-groups and all that stuff and the poison of it, how come the Pharisee gets a public rebuke? It's good for the woman. She's now seen what God is really like. Yeah? She had lived with the attitude Simon espoused her entire life. The human standard for godliness that she had been beaten with has been dismantled before her eyes. Imagine the liberation she must have experienced. All of her life she has feared and revered men like Simon and thought they were closer to God than her. And what she found out at this dinner party was that they were actually further away. The second reason it's okay to sometimes publicly rebuke. It was actually good for the Pharisee. Entitlement, indifference, affectionlessness, dishonour and pride kill. They rob humans of joy, freedom, wisdom, even physical and mental health and peace. We don't know how Simon responded to his evisceration. But there is only one way to know God and that is through repentance and faith in Jesus. Through this rebuke, Jesus gives Simon the opportunity. He gives him the opportunity to show that he is not content to enjoy his own superiority. Jesus himself shows that he is not content to just enjoy his own superiority, even though in this case he was actually superior in all moral ways. He doesn't see that as important. Rather, he takes it as an opportunity to bring Simon closer to his level. Religious thinking looks at people ways to divide us and pushes them away from us. But Christ-like thinking looks at what unites us and gives, encourages us to give the opportunity to bring people into our family. If we go to the next slide, what is wholeheartedness? We want to be a community that is full of wholehearted people who are sincerely committed to service, to honour, to affection and to humility. I actually think our church, in lots of ways, is very good at this. Not perfect, but we're very good. I also know we can be better. I know that for a fact, because we all believe, or those of us who are part of this church family believe, that Jesus is their Lord and Saviour, and have the Holy Spirit, who brings about the fruit. And you'll notice that the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit line up with what we've seen from wholeheartedness. So how do we go on from here and build a community of sincerely committed servers, honourers, lovers and humble people? I run a couple of businesses. <clears throat> They're going all right, thanks for asking. One of the things that gives me the dubious privilege one of the things that gives me the jubilous privilege of doing is reading business management books, and there's a lot of them, and a lot of them are not very good. Um, many of them are heavy on word count and very light on substance. Don't say anything about this sermon. But there were a couple of ideas that came out of the book called Good to Great by Jim Collins that I think can apply here. Because making this community, especially when we're comparing it to the extreme love that the woman showed for Jesus, seem very hard to imagine how we can, how we can get there. Yeah, I'm not, you're all sitting very quietly. This is a high standard 
that I'm suggesting we live up to. So one of the things that um, this book, uh, Good to Great, has is it, it talks about finding one idea, um, one thing, and you have to focus on that one concept that you can be really, really, really passionate about and that actually you're good at. That's because if you care about it, you get the sincerity part. And if you're good at it, your sincerity will build because you'll actually have degrees of success. Yeah. The second idea is that you only do things that contribute to what you're trying to be good at. This seems obvious. I mean, in the business world, this, you would think this is obvious, but business people are business people and they forget and they try and diversify all over the place and do different things that contradict each other. Right? If you keep doing things that build to what you want to be, you'll gain momentum. It'll be very slow at first, and the more you do, the more you do, the more you do, the better it will get. The author of the book, uh, Jim Collins, talks about imagine like a big stone flywheel, you know, like a massive grindstone. The first time you push it, it goes always nowhere, almost, almost nowhere. But the more you push it, it builds up its own momentum and it gets easier to push and easier to push and easier to push. If, however, you push it one direction and then push it the other direction, then push it the other direction, it's never going to go anywhere. We can become a wholehearted community if each of us individually picks something we care about, that we're good at, and that contributes to the mission of the church and just keeps doing it bit by bit and celebrating the small victories. If you don't care about something, don't, don't do it. Yeah? Pick something that you can do. You have the Holy Spirit. Yeah? And the church together will build.